moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Our recap of season one of Cascading Leadership continues. Now, if you had told me at the beginning of the launch of our show that we would have had somebody launch their presidential campaign on our show, I would have been, I would have said, you're out of your mind. That's crazy. But that, whether he realizes it or not, that's actually what our next guest actually did. So here's a story of somebody that's born and raised in Nigeria who came over to the U.S., and now he's a senior leader in a fintech startup in the IT space. So we're talking unicorn of unicorns here. Somebody born internationally, he's from Africa and he's an immigrant and he's in tech and he's a senior leader in tech in a financial services tech startup. Like how cool is that? So that was a really fun conversation. And the big thing out of all joking aside, the big thing out of that conversation that that I gathered out of it was the power of building communities around you so that you can actually pool that shared knowledge as you move forward in your career. I was fortunate enough to be born into a middle-class family, but one thing my parents always made sure was that we didn't live in a bubble. And so what that entailed was we're exposed to the majority of the country. And quite frankly, majority of the country lives in poverty, right? Below one, two dollars a day. And so growing up, seeing the potential of the country, like we knew we had crude oil, we had gold in some parts of the country, agriculturally rich, learning how those other countries had used their natural resources to get aware, but just not being able to understand the gap of how could a country so populous and so rich with natural resources be like tagged underdeveloped country. And so that's where I got the passion from for leadership at an early stage. Just in the local context in Nigeria, education was a big thing. Like you got more respect with the more degrees you had. That's how it was growing up. So if you had the master's degree, if you had the PhD, you, you were more respected. And I also always tell this joke. It was you were an engineer, a doctor, or a disgrace to the family. It was one <laughs> of those. And so growing up, I kind of anchor to the engineer part, like thinking I was creative. I used to break mobile devices and fix them. So just like doing things like that and also realizing that I had those skills. My siblings went the medical routes or the financial routes. So I was like an outlier in the family and deciding to go information technology route. I think that for GK, for me, it was very purposeful. And so the that whole story around him being president was around the intentionality of having a really the I think this is one of those cliches, but he really I think his approach his his life is a purpose driven one. And so I think about when he said that originally some of the things that he wanted to do when he was younger really didn't have anything to do with tech. He just wanted to make sure that he would make it that he would be able to be someone that would make an impact. But talking about what it was to be an international student being able to galvanize other international students and work with them 
to make them feel more like it was to normalize what it was to go through the experience that they were experiencing as international students was, I think, also helped to color his commitment to helping others. And I think that he talked about doing that in the in the tech space, helping to diversify the tech space. But he also, I think, also understood it from the other side that we talk about a lot is it being profitable to do so and not shying away from the fact that in order for organizations to be able to do what they to do what they can do and make an impact is to also ensure the health of the of the company. He's very forward thinking while holding on to what has helped to develop him as an individual. And I think he's also someone that confirmed about how important it was for family to be supportive as being that initial impact on who you are as an individual. So again, we heard that as a recurring thing throughout the season. And TK was certainly one of those people that helped to bring that home. After TK, we had Caesar Lawson out of Century 21 hop on yep. the show, talk about his journey into, into community, into a really interesting space at Century 21, where they're focused on expanding access and outreach to Latino communities. And that was pretty interesting. I think one of the things that stood out about the conversation that he and I had is that he caught on to the idea of building a community around his ethnic identity pretty early on. And the contrast between his story and mine is that I had zero interest in seeking out or being part of the Indian community that that I'm from. But it was just something that stood out and came up throughout the conversation where he was hyper-focused in that area and I was hyper-focused in another area. I don't want any part of that. One of the takeaways on that, here you have two generation zero immigrants with Caesar and I. And one of the things that you've said throughout the show when we talk to different guests is that we can't look at different underrepresented communities as monoliths. We got to deal with people as individuals. I'm paraphrasing now, but that was a nice illustration of that point where as far as his experience and my experience growing up, it was pretty similar, but you had two different paths that each of us took. And that was a pretty interesting contrast in in approaches. I think the thing that stands out for me is just that I was different. The fact that I didn't speak the dominant language, the fact that I didn't come from the dominant culture is really what shaped who I am, how I viewed the world. In addition to just my upbringing at home and, and what it looked like and what the values that I got from my mom and dad growing up, no doubt about that. But I would say that the experiences that I had with, for example, I'll never forget when I first moved to the States and coming from a Latin American country with pretty much 80 degrees every day, or at least it felt that way. And then feeling the temperature changes right here in Chicago, where it was spring 50, 60 degrees, and I was still wearing my heavy coat. And, and my friends were looking at me, even the teacher w- would approach me and say, you really don't need that. Because here in the US culture, it's 50, 60s, and people are putting on shorts and t-shirts. Where I come from culture. 50, 60s is still cold and you're wearing a heavy coat. So those are the kind of experiences that really cemented my idea that I'm different. I think differently. I feel differently. I am differently. What I ate at home was very different growing up in a strong Peruvian home. I ate Peruvian food every day. I'd go to school and eat cafeteria food for lunch. And I was like, what is this? I I was not a big fan, but all these cultural shocks that happened to me during those formative years that really cemented the idea like I'm different. I was pretty comfortable in an international environment where everyone was different. Then you put me 
when it's very homogeneous, I was uncomfortable. And I recognized that emotionally. And that's when I said, let me get into my comfort, my comfort being Peruvian, being Latino. Let me start seeking people that look like the environment that I came from. And that's when I made conscious choices get involved in organizations that had that replicated what I had back home in Chicago, like a Latino fraternity, like the La cultural center and things of that nature. And I said, okay, this is where I feel comfortable. And this is where I more had a sense of identity. The similarity is the adaptation, right? That you each chose a, a different way of doing it, but it was all about, it was all about the ability to, to adapt and knowing Caesar also on a personal level, it was, and knowing both of you, obviously it was, I thought it was, I definitely wanted to be on that show because I thought that would, would have been someone, one that was a whole lot of fun. Knowing you both really well, you all, while you talk about those differences, are both very driven individuals, um, very intentional about what it is that you do, very opinionated. They have a clear sense of, of what you want to accomplish. But I would say, yeah, Caesar's, Caesar's uh, superpower is definitely he has had the ability to work throughout the Latinx and Hispanic communities to really weave a really strong network. But I think what's interesting about that is that he has also been someone who has been key at building in that space but bringing in other individuals to help make it even to help make it even bigger. And uh, that I think that the, the key takeaway for I think Caesar is he extends what family is right to community. And that's why he is regarded as, as such a genuine person and a leader that is always willing, willing to help people. And he, he's an incredible systems thinker. Really good stuff with Caesar. And uh, that started a DEI focused sequence of shows. And next in line was Ebony Cephas. First things first, she needs to get like a podcast of her own because she came in (laughs) here like full out pro. But the biggest thing you mentioned that one of the things that Caesar was really effective at is bringing people together in service of a cause. And I think Ebony in her conversation was actually really effective at extending and expanding that through her conversation about lush principles, making sure that everybody within her organization, and she's a learning and development leader within her organization, understands and lives the concept of lush, which is everybody is loved, understood, seen, and heard, which in general, it's not a DEI principle. It's who doesn't want those things. But if you live those things as part of an organization, imagine the culture that you would build and imagine the stickiness that you would have in terms of your people wanting to be a part of that culture. And that was a great illustration about what modern DE&I and modern culture building can look like versus what some people think those, those acronyms mean. So that was a really fun conversation. She needs to start a podcast and yeah. Maybe we do a three-person podcast. I am the oldest of three, born to two entrepreneurs. My mom was a teacher. She also worked in the school system. My dad owned several businesses. Both are musicians. So empowerment was the name of our game growing up early. And because of the music side, we were helping to start up worship teams in our fellowship of churches. So parents are both born and raised in Texas, but we moved to California. That's where I was born. Then we moved to Louisiana, had some more kids down the road. And then we ultimately landed in Dallas, Texas, or Mesquite, Texas, formal. And in that school, I was maybe one of three African-Americans in the school. So you learn lessons early 
on how to navigate and what diversity really looks, but also being able to discover my own power inside. So you take that journey from middle school to high school where there were a lot of firsts. So in high school, using that music background, it gave me the opportunity to be one of the first African-Americans to sing our school song at graduation. And it meant so much to my family, but also the community to start paving the way. And that's one of the things that my father always taught us growing up is that we are trailblazers. And a trailblazer is someone who creates a path where there is none so that others may follow. A lot of the other Black kids that fed into these schools came from South Dallas. They understood Kwanzaa. And I wasn't raised like that per se. When we had history lessons at a family reunion, it was really about our lineage and we're cotton pickers, we are from Africa and you trace that story back. But even to be raised in a suburb of Dallas, I was not engulfed into the Dallas culture or the Black Dallas culture, had no idea until I had a friend who took me to South Dallas and gave me some exposure there. And I had my own biases of what that community was all about and how to fit in. And we did a debutante and that was, you know, that I wasn't exposed to that world and So you're right. I can't, even in a corporate setting today, I can't answer for all African-Americans because within that culture, it's totally different. And we all have different perspectives as well. So you're right. We can feel that pain to be that resource for the Black culture in a corporate environment where DE&I is concerned or people are asking for answers. I can only give you my experience and my story, but another Black person, they're not going to have the same story and the same perspective. She actually also talked about some of the elements in order to be successful in the DEI space. And and one of the, I think, a primary element is that what I generally say is you have to have the team, you have to have the budget, and you have to have the authority to be able to move the needle. And a great way that you actually do it that she called out was the relationship that she has with her CEO of her organization. And I think she downplayed the amazing work that she does and having the ability of being able to pull in the CEO and have and the CEO to have a best interest. And she talked about that her CEO had was already engaged, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he had to be engaged with her. Like he could just, could have just brought her in and hey, go do these things. But she talked about having that conversation. I think that's also, she talked about how sometimes there was, she had experiences where, you know, being an African-American, where her, she felt her experience was different than other African-Americans. And I think that it, this talks about what you said earlier about that no, and no one particular group is a monolith. And I think that her sense of belonging and finding herself, she has allowed that to be used for her to really be willing to accept others and serve a broader cause. And that's why I think that that the Lush Principle serves her well and serves the organization well because she's tied these things in. She's, again, has done that extension of family to community to organization and then that leading to a sense of effectiveness but based on the plan and design of lush we're running through all of these guests and i can't think of a single like 
clunky or bad conversation where I didn't learn anything from it. So it's been a lot of fun. That took us almost all the way through the end of April. And we had April close out with Maya Winston. I was really interested in having that conversation because here's somebody who is super focused on DEI efforts. And what makes her kind of a unicorn in that space is that she's been able to actually implement that at a pre-IPO startup. And the evidence points to that effort being a key factor in that organization, being able to accelerate to where they are. So that was a real interesting and fun conversation, setting aside the fact that we got to make fun of Notre Dame and all things Notre Dame. So that was cool too. The big takeaway for me coming out of that episode is that it's actual evidence and the evidence exists in a lot of other places about the impact that diversity can have in terms of bottom line results. But here you have an actual case study of a tech startup that's leading with a DEI focused approach in terms of how they build. And you have a tech unicorn, for the most part, showing the way. So that was that was an awesome takeaway coming out of that conversation. Those people yep. that live over there. It's like, I am those people. Like yeah. I'm cool enough to you know eat with you in the dining hall. But once you go outside the walls, you're afraid and you're clutching and you're, oh, scary them. I am them. So what is it that is the disconnect there? And I sat on several orientation student panels and there were always the parents who, oh, I'm so worried about my child's safety. And I was like, and I had to tell several times, I was like, it is not a requirement that your child graduate with a four-year degree and two bullet holes. That is not going to be a requirement for graduation here. And it's the same thing that you need to have anywhere else, which is street smarts, which is common sense. Govern yourself as you would anywhere else, but don't vilify and other the people whose home you're visiting yeah. as a student, but also respect it as such and get to know the neighborhood, go out and learn about it versus it being treated as the ghetto, which was thrown around so easily. Oh, that's the ghetto on the other side of exposition. It was like, no, it actually isn't. It's no more than what's happening inside these walls. It's just people's homes. People live, their children, schools, live in life. But when you need something, you're going into the ghetto. And so it was a, that was always an interesting thing for me to see. But then also the economic development that happened within the university and how they built up within their own perimeter. But the outside was allowed to be yep. run down, deteriorated and, and just ignored. So back to startups and how it fits into that. When I think startup, the first word that comes to mind when I hear of someone having a startup or going in there is disruption. You are coming in to start and introduce something. It may not be a completely new concept, but you're approaching it from a different level of execution or you're putting your own spin on it, but you're introducing it into the marketplace and you're going to see how far. In that spirit and in that understanding, knowing what has been as far as corporate structures, DEI should be there so early that it is a part of that change of how you do business versus doing business how it's been done and then we'll get to the other changes later. If you're truly going to disrupt and come in and do something differently and prove that it works. Maya, who is someone I also know very well, she's an individual that, yeah, I would say that committed an organizational effectiveness would be an understatement. She's someone who effectively made the transition from a Fortune 100 company to a into a tech startup space, and and so I had the opportunity 
to see her, to see it firsthand the work that she did with her second inclusion. But she succeeds at it, I think, largely because she is someone who is driven by operational and organizational effectiveness, which is why we have we became fast friends in this space because she gets the profit first and then trying to put all the dynamics into place. I think her lived experience, again, is one where she lived a stone's throw away from USC in, in an urban area and where she had that opportunity and she didn't lose sight. She carried every aspect of who she was throughout her life to where she is today. And I think that's an important representation because I think when I think you'd ask her a question around the impact of USC in the community that it serves because many of these top organs, top institutions of learning, right, are in impoverished areas. What, what kind of a commitment are they making? I think she talked about some of the things that they were doing in her being a part of the program to, to show that. But she wasn't, she has not been someone who is afraid of saying, hey, we need to address this in this way and taking out the ambiguity and being candid about it. And so I think it, it has served her well in her DEI pursuits. This is like a greatest hits sort of conversation because <laughs> yeah. they just keep coming. Like we've had so many great stories that came. So following Maya's great case study about how you can actually accelerate growth and probably build much stronger cultures by leading with DEI first in technology. We have Maricar from Willis Towers Watson, who is a global leader of learning and development. And here we have a story about an immigrant from the Philippines who's had internationally scope roles all over the world, talking about how she's building a, a leadership bench that is women-focused within her organization, in addition to all the other stuff that she does. It's another story about don't let the circumstances that you're in find necessarily where you're going to end up. It's just a point that you happen 100%. to be in. And again, it's another inspirational story that serves the goal of giving everybody that's listening some sort of cliff notes on, hey, here's a path that you can take. It's a role that I absolutely adore being in. I love the opportunity to develop people and frankly, to develop leaders because they are what count in terms of taking our businesses forward. So I've been with WTW for six years. And prior to that, spent a lot of time in financial services over 20 years, both in the business, in the front line as a sales and trading person, and then moved into the learning and development space where I chose to stay because to me, it is a place where I feel I can really make a lot of impact and make a difference. I'm so used to the style of leadership in the U.S., which is very present, almost like in your face, and then moving to leadership that is more cloaked in a way. And you felt sometimes that you wanted to pull more from the leaders and say, Talk to me. What exactly are you saying? What is your vision? So it's a difference in style. And I did feel that I had to adjust to the change. At one point, I was so frustrated. I remember telling my husband, okay, I can't, I want to go back to New York. I can't, this, no, this is not working for me. But then eventually, years, months, years, 
passed by, I actually grew to adjust to actually the leadership style that you would see in the UK and in Europe, quite different. But to me, what I take away from that is, and the beauty and that I had the opportunity to actually work with global companies. And I think I mentioned this to Jim, that global view and, and the world is really molding into almost one and that ability to reflect what I've learned in the US, in the UK and vice versa, frankly, to me has been great. I can see different leadership perspectives more than others who I work with have had the opportunity to do. It's funny because when you just described what you were saying, the, the thing that jumps out that I remember on Maricard is that you had asked her a question somewhere along the path of what has it been like to be a woman in the corporate sector? And her response, paraphrasing, of course, was something along the lines of, I know that the issue of bias exists against women, that there is discrimination sometimes, but she had not necessarily experienced those things. And I think there's, it was such a powerful statement to say because she's, she wasn't at all trying to be dismissive because she said she actually acknowledged those things. But what struck me about that was it's also about disempowering beliefs and limited beliefs. And I feel like she didn't buy into some of the things that could have potentially been impediments to her career, but also recognizing and also as someone who being other women and understanding what what women go through in the corporate sector oftentimes and be willing to be someone who is a voice for other women. So that that was the one that, that really struck me. The other one is that, I don't know how she's going to feel about this, but it's just smooth. She Just the way that she approaches everything is very methodical. She's very driven, which again is one of the recurring things. But I just kept thinking when I heard her speaking, such a smooth and poised approach to so many things. And I was very impressed by that. I hadn't thought about the delivery aspect of it. And I should have asked it in the moment. And the hits keep coming. Let's talk about J.R. Moore of Apple. What do you got to say about that guy? I grew up in uh, rural Illinois. There was a cornfield right behind me. There were the railroad tracks on the north side of my house. And on the south side of my house were the local junkyard. That's kind of where I came from. I started there. I was born into an interracial marriage. My, my father's black, my mother's white. And living in rural Illinois in the 80s, that was unusual. There were definitely some challenges growing up in that environment, even though the town I was growing up in was actually the town that my father was born and raised and he grew up in. It was still a, a town that had known him. That relationship with my mom and being mixed race was a challenge. A little bit more about myself and my family. My worked fast food her entire life. My father worked corrections for the state his entire life. Again, as I said, we lower middle class. We never had everything, but we always had enough. And I'm sure we'll get into, but definitely a lot of the things that I learned have driven and motivated me. I learned from the duality of that relationship with my parents, their work ethic, things I learned from them as, as well. One of the things I I learned from my parents. And one of the things I've carried with me, there's really two aspects. My, my father was a leader of men. He, he worked in an environment where he was the authority figure. He was in a correctional officer for juveniles. He was someone who was looking after juveniles who were in jail or in, for, for a crime they had committed. But he was there to educate, develop, teach, try and get them to be able to be back on the straight and narrow, as he would say, when they came out of, of that situation. And then my mother, as I said, all worked her entire life 
life in fast food, she was your quintessential grinder, always did for other people, never kept for herself, never said no to that extra hour of overtime or extra shit, was always doing whatever she could and coming home, taking care of me and my brother and my sister, never complained about any situation that she was in, even though I know that she was exhausted all the time. And I observed this. I saw other friends of mine whose parents weren't as dedicated and committed to them and creating as best of an environment as possible for them. And I really appreciated what my parents gave me in terms of that learning. Again, my father being this leader, my mother really- It's funny because JR and I had, we had a pre-conversation and a post-conversation. And so the pre, the show and the post were all amazing. Talking about him starting with having a start a beginning in downstate Illinois and making his way to University of Illinois. And actually, I'm sorry, the University of Chicago. Let me clarify that because I want him to light me up. It is the University of Chicago, which is U of I is a great school, but University of Chicago is regarded as one of the best schools in the country. I think he may have mentioned that once or twice, but he's he's someone that also to me represents a person that is willing to help others that are junior to him. He is someone that was definitely driven. He talked about the fam, you know, the family and how much they played a part in his life, both his mom and dad and the coaches along the way, his, his travel through. I literally can, it's one of those, it's one of those shows for me that I did that one one-on-one and he was a McMaster car, went on to, to Apple. And I actually told him in the post show that he reminded me, he has like this, just get it done approach. And I, I told him to read this book called Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And I was telling the story about David Goggins, who is someone who, if anybody has ever heard of him, he's pretty amazing. I don't remember exactly, but I know that he completed the Navy SEAL training twice. I think the Delta Force or the Rangers. And I was telling him that a lot of, a lot of what Goggins talks about in terms of having a drive and intentionality, not making excuses for things that happen and just keep plugging away and just keep keeping your eye on the prize. And that he reminded me JR. And JR also said that the other thing that struck me was you're saying instead of looking at your life as a checklist, you look at it as a continuum, right? You keep going back and making new adjustments and not checking off a box and making these and making these tweaks. But he pulled from every bit of his experience with a with an intention. And there was a reason why he did everything that he did. And I was joking with him again in the post show. I'm like, wow, you certainly have it's like you thought of everything. And he's like, no, I wouldn't say that. But it was a matter of knowing that he what he did key in on was the next move would impact the next move if that makes sense, if that makes sense. And I don't think everybody necessarily does that. I think we make the next move and we may sit. But I think JR was so intentional about everything that he's doing, even the way in which he communicates, who he communicates with. We talked about managing upwards. And I think that so many people miss that is a necessary skill set. If you want to move your career further faster, you've got to be adept at being able to manage upwards. And I think we really talked about that as well. So the amount of takeaways that came out of a comparatively short episode too was amazing. And he checks all the boxes in terms of who we like to have on as guests, where you know it seems to be a requirement at some level that you had to have worked at Enterprise. So there's that. JR was a wrestler, so I was a wrestler and yeah. We connected at that level. We both were colleagues at one point during our enterprise days. So there was a lot there, nerdy in his own way. 
a lot of great things came out of that conversation. It was, I was irritated that I didn't get to be there, but I had other commitments. So that was cool. Tune in next time for part three of the Cascading Leadership Season 1 Recap. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.